Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to our prayer and devotional service here at Lakeview Baptist Church. Uh, my name is Logan. I'm going to be leading us in our, our devotion, our mini-sermonette, and, and afterwards, my brother Bill, he's going to come and, and, and close us in, in prayer. Uh, I want to invite you to take your copy of, of God's Word and please turn with me to the 10th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10 is where we're going to be sort of focusing tonight. Um, you know, just thinking, a, a personal uh, pet peeve of mine is when people criticize the word religion. Uh, people, even Christians, will talk about religion, will use the word religion like it's this bad, this evil, this, this horrible thing. You know, you'll hear people say, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or, you know, I, I have a relationship, not, not a religion. But here's the deal. You are, in fact, religious. Uh, the word religion at its most basic dictionary definition level, all that word means is just a particular set of beliefs uh, organized to, to some degree in some kind of system Obviously, we think about different religions. We think about Christianity, Mormonism, Hinduism, Islam, uh, whatever the case may be. But yet even you could argue that the most secular, uh, materialist, atheist on the planet is a very religious person. Well, why is that? Well, he has his set of beliefs. He has his Darwinism. He has his Frederick Nietzsche or, or whatever it is. And and he has this framework that he constructs, uh, ultimately, his larger worldview around his religion. And so all of us, if we are thinking, reasoning people, we are religious to some degree. And so what we need to recognize is that not that religion is a, is a bad thing, but that it's a matter of right religion and, and wrong religion. It's not... If you're going to have religion, it's which religion are you going to have? And by the way, I want to be very specific. I, I don't just mean, you know, which religion is uh, objectively, factually correct, because there could be someone who agrees with me on, on every point of doc doctrine. They just go down the 1689 and they just check, amen, amen, amen. And, and they're, they could be with me on every theological point. But they could have, in a sense, false religion. Why? Well, the scriptural teaching is that true religion has more to do with than just the mind. But true religion ultimately has to do with the heart. James, the brother of our Lord, writes in his epistle, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Now catch what he's saying there. There is a man who thinks he is religious, but what? He has deceived his heart. You see, his mind conforms to the religion. His mind conforms to the set of beliefs. His heart is absent. You see, God he is very much concerned with our minds. The reason that God gives us the Bible is that we can read it and understand it and know it and believe it. So obviously God cares about what we believe on a factual level, but he cares 
about more than just our minds. He cares about our hearts. James goes on to say, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now to understand this concept more and hopefully that God would use this truth, use his word to impact all of our lives, I want us to look at a text that is found in, as previously mentioned, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, These are some of the words of Moses before the people enter into the promised land. I'm just going to begin reading a little bit here in verse 12. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Now notice something right there. Those of you who are regular listeners to my preaching may think that I you know, sound like a, a broken record or something like that. It seems like I'm just saying the same thing over and over again every week. But it just so happens that it remains true every week. Look at how God-centered this is from the outset. Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Not what does the world require of you, not what will make you seem good in man's sight or man's opinions, what will appease the surrounding nations of the land that Israel is about to enter, but what does God require? You see, God, He is the very author, He's the very standard of morality and ethics. So when we talk about how it is we ought to live our lives The very first thing we need to get down is this. What does God say? What does God require? What direction does God want to take the church? Not what's my vision for the church. What does Jesus say about the church? Not what are my plans, my ambitions, my goals for my life. What does God say about how? I should live my life, how I should treat my neighbors, how I should treat my fellows, how I should do my job. It gets down to the very core of everything. How I should, if you're married, how I should love my wife, how I should love my children. What does God say? Whatever it is that God says, that, that is what we need to shoot for. That is what we need to obey. And so, Well, what does he say? What does the Lord our God require? Well, it says to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, notice even this, how God-centered those very commands are. I count at least five separate commands in these verses. Every one of them has to do with the Lord. But notice this, and this is something that we really need help understanding. Verse 12 says that the Lord our God requires that we love him. Now, do you realize that? That there is a moral ought 
that there is a commandment, that there is a rule, that there is a statute, there is an ordinance from heaven that says we need to love God. It's something that we are supposed to do. We have to love God. It's what He requires of us. And so you see that when it comes to this whole issue of true and false religion, true, genuine, spiritual religion begins with a love for the Lord your God. The one true God, by the way. The God of the Bible who is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, Yahweh. Even when it comes to obedience, it says we are to serve Him with all of our hearts, with all of our soul. That this is what God requires of us. And that is that we live absolutely, supremely God-centered lives. Now, this is a conservative Baptist church, and I, and I imagine that, you know, every single person here who calls himself a Christian, you know, if you were to be asked, you know, is God the King of Kings? You know, is God the Lord of Lords? We would say, well, yes. Well, of course, he, he, he is. He's, he's the ultimate. He is God. He is the creator of all things. Uh, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You know, yes, yes, yes. We will all you know, say those words, but my question is this, does your life look like you believe those words? Does your life look like you believe that God is the supreme one, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords? It's easy to say the words, but do you actually believe them? Once again, this is a conservative Baptist church, if I were to say, you know, raise your hand if you believe that the Bible is the ultimate, authoritative, inspired, infallible Word of God. I already got a hand back there. But every single one of us, we're going to raise our hands, we're going to clap, we're going to say yes, amen. But do you actually believe that? It's easy to, 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 to say those words, but does the life that you live reflect that you actually believe? That when the Bible speaks, as Benjamin Warfield said, God speaks. Verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Now this statement, it's almost like it serves to justify or explain the previous exhortation as if God needed to defend himself. But you see, it is God's nature to condescend to our level and, and to speak on our level so that by His grace we can understand Him. He says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. You think about the, the false gods of, of the land of Egypt that they just left as well as the various deities of the surrounding nations uh, to which they're going and and you see how significant this is. Because the Lord, because Yahweh is not just one of many gods. No, He is God. He is the God. To Him and to Him alone belongs heaven and earth and all that is in it. All of it. Down to its most microscopic 
level. It all belongs to God. And so this is a hugely binding statement. It is all-encompassing. Name a thing. It belongs to God. That understanding should fuel our devotion. It should fuel our commitment. And it should fuel our obedience as well. Because when we listen to the Bible... We are not just reading one of many different books on philosophy and ethics or whatever. No, no, the Bible is the very word of the one who created and sustains all things. The only reason that other people can uh, even play around with their false religions, their false ideologies, their false philosophies is because God, in His common grace, allows them to think and to speak and to have breath in their lungs. This is all the more reason why we should despise the wisdom of man and lean wholly upon God. Now you look at this, in verse 15 we read, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Now look at that crucial first word there in verse 15, yet. Yet, you see what that word communicates is the reality that the thought that's coming next is, is a, going to seem like it's a stark contrast to what just came before. You know, a person might say, you know, that right there, that is a big man, that's a strong man, that's a tough man. Yet, when he is with his kids, he, he has the heart of a child. Well, that's sort of like what's going on in this verse. In verse 14, you have the powerful majesty of God boldly displayed. And it's like, yet, this God, this Lord of lords, this King of kings, creator of heaven and earth, to whom belongs all dominion and authority, Yahweh, set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day. Now think about that. Of All people who were alive on earth at that time, Abraham was the one chosen by God to be the father of many nations. Abraham was given God's covenant promise. Well then, we can break things down even further, can't we? We can look at Abraham's offspring, his children, Ishmael and Isaac. And the Lord says, not through Ishmael, but from Isaac specifically, your descendants shall be named. Break it down even further, then even with Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau, you know the verse, you may not like the verse, but it's in there, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now think about that. Think about what that should tell your soul. Of all peoples, God specifically chose through this particular line of men that through them, He was going to establish his people. To them, he was going to give his revelation, his word, and ultimately the promised redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so Moses says this to the Israelites in verse 15. He says, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. You see, what's being communicated there is You people, you people specifically, 
have been chosen by God to be the recipients of his promise, the beneficiaries of his blessings, the keeper of his covenants. Now, was it because the people of Israel deserved it? Was it because they were good people? Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know the answer to that question already. If you know anything about Israel's history, what's the testimony? You are a stiff-necked and stubborn people. The Lord gives them His love. He gives them His promises. He gives them His Word. And yet when Moses is up on Sinai, they grow weary. And what do they do? Take their jewelry, melt it, make a golden calf. That's who the people of Israel are. They're idolaters. They're adulterers. They're thieves. That's who they are. So did they deserve to be chosen by God? Absolutely not. For just a chapter earlier, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6, we read, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Now think about that. What does that do? That eliminates any kind of concept of a works-based salvation, any kind of works righteousness where I earn God's favor, where I do these things and, and, I, and I tip the scales and I win him over. No. God says, I'm not blessing you because you're righteous or because you're good. Why then? Well, what have we read? The Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You see, the only reason that God shows his mercy upon these people is because he chooses to love them. Because he sets his heart on them. They deserve it? No. Am I, as a Christian, more deserving of God's blessing than anyone else in this neighborhood? Not at all. Not at all. I wasn't more righteous. It wasn't that I did these things. It wasn't that I made the right choices. It wasn't that I was more spiritual. I, I am just a humble sinner who has received God's mercy, who has received God's grace. That should humble you. That, that should cause something in you. Well, what should it cause? Verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. And so here is where I think things sort of get tied around back together. What did we say about true religion? That it has to do with the heart. And so the people are told, circumcise their hearts. Now you know circumcision was the covenant sign of the Israelites. It was a sign of their devotion to God and their, their separation from the rest of the nations. But what verse 16 tells us is that it, it, it's not just enough to bear the sign, to bear the mark of God's people on the outside, in your flesh. But the truth of what that sign, circumcision, represents needs to be in your hearts. It needs to be in your hearts. You know, sadly, some people have this idea that you know, the Old Testament law is, is 100% external, and it's not until the New Testament where there is like this real spirituality. But that's not the case. Now, the New Covenant is a substantially better, richer covenant because it's established on better promises, Christ's blood. 
But still, even the Old Testament law, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, everyone's favorite books, are very much concerned with our hearts, with our spiritual well-being. And, and these books remain relevant for all Christians to this day. You are to circumcise the foreskin of your heart, meaning take your heart, separate it from all that is impure, dedicate it wholly to God. Cut off any impure thing remaining in your heart. This is what our response should be when we contemplate the the powerful love of God that has been given to us. Because you see, true religion has very, very much to do with what's actually inside of you, not just what's on the outside. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, we read about a, a circumcision that is made without hands. Paul, he's talking about being made alive in Christ. Because you see what happens when God saves a person, when God converts them, He fundamentally changes them. He makes a circumcision on the heart that is, that is without hands, meaning it's not just some physical thing. It's not just that I started going to church and I started dressing differently or, or whatever. No, there has been a change in your heart if you are a true Christian, a circumcision made without hands. You've been united with Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and His resurrection. Baptism represents that. You go down into the waters, you die to yourself, and you raise again unto newness of life. That's why Jesus says a man must be born again to even see, let alone enter, the kingdom of heaven. You say, what does it mean to be born again? Well, whatever it is after you've been born again, it's not what you were before. Okay, It's a radical, spiritual, supernatural change that all Christians experience. Verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And by His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Now there's a lot that goes on in that last section I just read. But notice this. The people are reminded once again of the, the, the godness of God and His greatness, His splendor, His might, His awesomeness, His power in verse 17. And then, in verse 18 we read that He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. The orphan and the widow. Keep that in mind. And then it says, just that as God loves the sojourner, so too should we love the sojourners. And then chapter 10 ends with yet another exhortation to the people of Israel to celebrate God for who He is. So you ask the question, ultimately, what does true religion produce in a person? A change of heart and care for the orphan and the widow. It's again what James says in his epistle, that if anyone thinks he is religious 
and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. A theme that you find so much throughout Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, is God's care for the orphan and the widow. That is, people who are afflicted, people who are distressed, people who are oppressed. They have great afflictions, great struggles in their lives. And what is pure, undefiled religion supposed to do? It's supposed to cause a man to circumcise the foreskin of his heart, to cut off the impurity, cut off the worldliness, cut off all the impure things that everyone else is doing that I just simply cannot do because God has separated me from everyone else and dedicate himself wholly, totally towards God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, our Christianity is meant to control us. And if our hearts are wholly dedicated towards God, the natural result of that will be that we care for those who are struggling. We care for those who are downcast, for those who are hurting, the orphan and the widow. And the first step that we can take in this matter is by praying for these people and praying that God would give us the strength to minister to them. With that being said, my brother Bill is going to come and close us in prayer. Thank you for your time.